Hey guys, this is Carl, and I'm here representing the Orthodox squad. Most of us are away on holiday. Um, I know Sky's up in Colorado, Milos is in Serbia, and Demos is in Greece. Um, but otherwise, we've got two people from Orthodox Shahada, I think the only two people. And for those of you that don't know, that's a channel that deals with uh, Islam and an Orthodox perspective on Islam, and I'll just get them to introduce themselves. Kai, how are you? Doing great, brother. How are you doing? Praise God. Well, thank you. Glory to God. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do with your channel? Yeah, so um, I'm Orthodox Christian cradle, born into the Serbian Orthodox Church. There was a time in my life when I had fallen away from the faith, um, only to come back later on in life and then use basically my life's experience um, looking into other religions to kind of expose what I have found is problematic with those with those other faiths, uh, namely Islam. And uh, getting to know Lewis in the process of this, uh, we had mutual interests in starting up Orthodox Shahada to address Islam. I think just kind of grew from there over the past past few years. What I notice about your channel is that um, usually people don't know that it's you or Lewis behind it because it's kind of anonymous. Was there a reason for that or just that's the way it kind of went? It's honestly, it's really more of just a convenience factor. Um, sometimes it'll be like expositions that we both hold to. Um, and so it's just easier to just do it under the OS brand. Sometimes the nature of the way the information is communicated, those who are frequent um, consumers of the channel and the content and engage us on our Discord server, they can kind of pick out from the language and the way the style is written or communicated, which of us is the one that's actually communicating these ideas. But there's no real kind of reason why. I think it's more just kind of a convenience factor who's logged in under which account at the time to make the postings. For me, it's easy just to kind of log in as Orthodox Shahada, keeps everything simple, consistent, and um, yeah. What made you want to focus on Islam specifically as opposed to, I don't know, some, some other some other kind of for me yeah well for me it's there there are two reasons why first is i have direct exposure with islam it's one area of that i'm very familiar with um from even from a personal perspective and it's kind of wanting to just apply my existing knowledge within islam um because it's allows me to basically talk about something without having to do much more legwork or new legwork in terms of learning a whole new new system. This is already baggage that I have from before. So it's now just kind of applying it. So that's the first reason. The second reason is, is that I think um, Islam in and of itself is very prominent um, in society and it has uh, it's pushing certain agendas that come with the religious system that I am opposed to. And so there is like an actual real world implication here of why there is a necessity to actually address Islam. And the simple reason is, is I don't want to live in an Islamic society and I want people to be aware of what is everything entailed by Islam and that we don't transform our society into an Islamic society. And those of us who are in certain Western countries where we've been witness to um, efforts by Muslim, the Muslim community to actually introduce parallel um, 
systems of governance within our societies, like, for example, the institution of Sharia courts within Western countries. And there it's like basically starting to set up a new parallel society within society. And it's things like this where like you see this encroachment that um, I'm I'm opposed to. And if people were really, I think, aware and familiar with what the true teachings of Islam are, then they would be opposed to this kind of implementation, this encroaching upon our our um, our existing structure. Yeah, definitely. What I find is that when people are dealing with Islam, they're not really aware that there's different groups of Muslims on a surface level. They actually disagree with each other fundamentally. And that if you look at it, it's not just the Quran. There's other um, aspects of Islam that they get doctrine from, like the Hadiths. And uh, could you explain some of that, like thick Hadith, the Quran, where they all come in and how, as an Orthodox Christian, you'd kind of open this conversation with someone that might be Muslim and go from there, what would you say? Yeah. So one of the things with regards to Islam, so they, as an Islamic community, they themselves are, it's basically Islam is like an umbrella. It's not a unified belief system like what you would find in orthodoxy. So, for example, as an orthodox Christian, whether you go to a Greek church or you go to a Serbian church, a Russian church, Romanian, Bulgarian, Antiochian, those beliefs are going to be consistent irrespective of jurisdiction. There might be some kind of cultural influences here and there that differ, but nothing that impacts the faith in and of itself and by and large the way that it's practiced that's not what you encounter within islam islam you will find there are significant divergences in terms of what they even believe in they yes they will all hold to the quran they will all hold to the so-called prophethood of muhammad but base but basically just beyond the mere basics of what tenets of uh, the fundamental tenets of islam are the details start kind of diverging greatly. And so different groups will approach differently how to ascertain what are authoritative, um, how can I say, like authoritative teachings within Islam. And so you'll have one group that says, well, we're going to recognize a, B, C, and D as being binding on us, whereas another group will say, no, we're going to reject those. We're going to take these things over here. And so you kind of get these flavors of Islam that actually start being differentiated even at what they believe, how they conceive of God, how they conceive of evil, how they conceive of morality, and so on. And all of this stuff kind of traces back um, within Sunni Islam, the majority Islam, to something that you've already mentioned called hadiths. And these are um, recognized as basically the actions and sayings of Muhammad apart from the Quran. And so they are used as um, sources with regards to how do you actually implement many of the teachings within Islam that we find in the Quran. So for example, the Quran will say you have to pray but it doesn't give you the instructions what entails all the aspects of prayer. So you go to the hadiths to find all the details. And that's just a simple example, but you have it basically across the spectrum, every aspect of Islam. And so then you'll have different groups will look to different hadiths 
from which they're going to extract their information and how they're going to apply even the same hadith to arrive at particular judgments and rulings of how to implement um, Islam. Now, there are differences, but some of the things are kind of, if you will, universal. So you're going to find things like it doesn't really matter which particular jurisdiction or implementation of Islam that you find. You're going to find that if you're within the Sunni school, you're going to have to pray. Like you can't just say, no, I'm not going to pray. You are going to have to pray. You're going to have to fast. You're going to have to do all of these things. But then you'll get into nuance as well. Am I allowed to combine my prayers? When can I combine my prayers? When can I begin my fast? When can I end my fast? Uh, some schools may start it earlier, some may start it later, and so on and so forth. But within a larger societal context, for example, things like how do you treat um, non-Muslims? Uh, how do you treat non-Muslims as subjects of an Islamic caliphate? How do you treat apostates? How are they to be punished? Should they apostatize from Islam? Um, how, like, those kinds of questions are basically more uniform across the um, across the schools. There are again differences, but they're all basically in a position that is like very unfavorable to non-Muslims. And so that's kind of where I like to focus um, my. Um, my efforts on is kind of accentuating these larger scale machine that you have that's called Islam, how that works and where it's trying to go um, in a large scale in terms of its interactions with non-Muslims. To play devil's advocate for just a second, what I think the first thing the Muslim is going to say is, oh, aren't there a bunch of denominations of Christianity? Is how many mm -hmm. denominations you guys are? You say Orthodox, but why can't I just say Sunni, you know? Yeah, like, we're united. What's the difference? Yeah. So unlike orthodoxy in Islam, you don't have any means of establishing normativity because yes. what right. you have here is, is you just have this movement that appeared with Muhammad and the Sunni position does not actually set out how do you establish what constitutes correct belief and correct implementation. So it's unlike orthodoxy, where in orthodoxy you have, for example, the ecumenical councils, you have the bishops, you have a clerical structure, you have something in place, an authoritative structure in place that is not just political, it is religious in function, that is there to tell us what constitutes correct belief. And historically, what we see with the church is, is that if you don't accept what the church is teaching then what you end what ends up happening is is you actually get cut off from the sacraments you can you can no longer partake of communion you cannot no longer go into confession you can no longer basically be part of the community and for us the sacraments themselves are grace-filled it is actually the grace of god being communicated through these sacraments so if you cut yourself off from that you're not receiving the grace of God in any kind of form in terms of your worship. And so for Orthodox, in order for us to maintain this connection to the sacraments, we also have to be united in our belief so as we're not getting cut off from that. Something of that sort does not exist in Islam. Islam basically just says as long as you subscribe to certain tenets and certain um, practices, then you are to be considered Muslim, 
beyond that, there is no um, regulation in terms of what you have to believe um, and the way that you have to do certain certain things. So fundamentally, the reason why differences exist between Christianity and Islam are just two different um, two different streams. Like it's yes, there are differences, but for us as Christians, we will not say that somebody who is not Orthodox can actually receive valid sacraments. So they're not receiving yes. anything that's based filled to the enacting of what they will call sacraments. But a Muslim will say, "Is like yes, it's okay for us to have differing beliefs because um, Muhammad never spoke to any of this stuff, and if he never spoke about it explicitly, then we don't have to have an actual ruling who's right or wrong. We're allowed to speculate. So as long as we don't violate certain tenets that Muhammad did explicitly speak on." you can still be considered part of, of Islam, within the fold of Islam. But those tenets, those tenets Muhammad spoke on, I think a Shia and a Sunni, or even a group within a Sunni, like there's different factions, they disagree about what Muhammad actually mm -hmm. said on a fundamental level. How do yep. you open that topic with a Muslim in general? Because, you know, it comes across as hostile. We're, we're living in an increasingly globalized world, so we're being forced to all kind of come together and communicate with each other on a much closer level than we would have otherwise. How do you approach mm -hmm. someone that's Muslim and just open up this topic without seeming like you're attacking them? Sure. Um, I know, Lewis, did you want to maybe kind of chime in here? I've been taking the, the spotlight for a while here. I didn't catch the question, to be honest. Um, sorry. It's fine. I'm asking, how do you approach a Muslim in general as an Orthodox Christian and just open up this topic without seeming like you're being hostile um, because at the end of the day we do genuinely want the salvation of everyone whether they're Muslim or not and we want Muslims to join the church so how do you go toward a Muslim and just say hey I noticed this or I noticed that and then segue that into discussion about the faith I think it's very difficult I think it depends on the context <clears throat> I think if you're online, it's very, very easy to strike up a discussion with a stranger who's anonymous and kind of just go at it with them however you want. But if it's someone in real life, it's kind of difficult to get into these kinds of discussions, especially if it's like a colleague or something. It's not really, it could be, uh, it could be dangerous, but I'd say, um, I'd say, if they're if they're friends if you're friends with them prior it's much easier to to broach these kinds of topics so i'd say probably make friends first and then you can sort of just start asking questions and you can kind of um you know you don't have to just start peppering them with kind of arguments you just be like well what do you think about this or, or i read this about islam is that true and you know and then you kind of ask those sorts of open-ended leading questions and then get into discussions about that and then you can sort of say oh well that's interesting that you say well do you believe that well we believe this and i don't know that seems to i think our belief seems to make more sense of this and that fact or this and that intuition that's why that's why i'd say it would be a, a probably a, a, an even-handed approach that would yeah, be okay 
Well, on an aesthetic level, what I like to do is I notice that orthodoxy and Islam are very aesthetically similar. Out of all the Christian denominations, orthodoxy on an aesthetic level resembles Islam the most. I have an idea why that is, but I, I think that when you're talking to someone, you like kind of bring up the similarities, like why we look similar. We could say, for example, why this looks like this. And then you... I, what I do is kind of shift it to, uh, but maybe maybe it's because Islam took some influence, for example, from orthodoxy. Rather than saying, oh, you stole everything from, from us and, and I'm therefore just going to just bag you up for that. No, rather, maybe Islam was influenced by orthodoxy, the, the religion that was in the region around it, and then I'd open the topic up from there. Um, Otherwise, I another thing that I wanted to bring up is on this line of thinking: Why is Islam aesthetically so similar to orthodoxy? Well, let, let, let me touch on that. So I don't know if Kai Kai may or may not agree with me on. Actually, although we were on the same channel, me and Kai have we do have disagreements on certain things um, that we talk about, and um, yeah, and we have different interests. Um, I'm kind of more interested in the medieval theology and the metaphysics than I am um with like thick and stuff like that but um in terms of aesthetic similarity i think the problem with leading with this aesthetic similarity is that it will kind of like give this anyway in my experience it can give the muslim you're talking to a sort of a false impression um because the aesthetic similarities i'm not sure which ones you're talking about but the ones that maybe i could think of are going to be very surface level um so let's take for example um oh i don't know views about say like evil or something like that or like let's say there's certain hardships and you have to overcome those in christianity there's sort of a much stronger understanding of theodicy even though in islam they might have they might say similar things or they might do similar things like arms and like fasting, but the kind of the the reasoning for those things that undergirds why we do those things is completely different. Um, so that's what I'd say. Maybe, maybe Kai can think of a, a better example, but um, well, yeah, like even so... like fasting. So go ahead. What I meant more so with aesthetic isn't on a theological basis, because I think that at a fundamental level, we're opposed on almost everything. I meant more like actually how things look, like the mosques look very similar to our churches, the, the whole hijab. Right, they are, right. you so know. this is actually a, this is, this is a good example. So the mosque, okay, so you have the uh, sort of kind of um, dome structure, or you might have some structural similarities to like a, a classical Byzantine church. The thing is, is that with the mosque, like the dome and kind of like the, what perhaps what, what kind of mosaic structures you might have inside a mosque um, aren't, and aren't usually intended to actually um, put forward any kind of symbolic meaning. Um, they just kind of exist. Whereas in orthodoxy, there's sort of clear symbolic uh, meaning behind why there's a dome and why that and like the um yeah like the sort of like the prayer niche like in 
in orthodoxy you kind of have this sort of <clears throat> iconostasis and behind it you have the what would be the holy of holies or like the sanctuary and that's uh, the whole structure of the church is supposed to be like the temple and so you have this kind of mirroring of the the cosmos and sort of man uh man's communion with god and god coming out through the veil to to interact with man and that kind of thing and you have this sort of tiered representation of heaven and earth inside the church but it, in like say the mosque you have this little niche this sort of separated part where the muslim uh who's leading the prayer will go and um uh, lead the prayer but there's no actual sort of symbolic significance to any of the contents of these things that are aesthetically similar so um yeah maybe kai can add on to this i hope i'm not rambling so. yeah no i mean the only thing that i would really say is that i mean just the fact that muslims and orthodox christianity in particular have lived in proximity historically and so there is influence um there to be to be seen um it would be very similar to how for example um the like southeastern europe basically um greece serbia those regions um have been under ottoman occupation and they have appropriated certain um visible manifestations of um ottoman culture into their own culture and so when you look at the two it's like they're not going to be completely identical but you're going to clearly see that there is some influence some borrowing and it could be even just as simple as that you have basically um islam come on the stage historically you have muslims expanding their empires and they're basically coming into contact with christians and they're seeing that these Christian groups already have systems in place in terms of their praxis, how they're practicing their faith, their religion, in terms of, the, let's say, the church structure and whatnot. And it's just very simple for people seeing this to just appropriate it and say, well, hey, that's a good idea. Why reinvent the wheel? We'll just kind of copy what we see, but maybe fine tune it so that it's a little bit more um, in line with the way we practice our faith than it is particular to Christianity, but nevertheless, you do see an influence an influence there. I mean, I, I think it could be just as simple as that. that doesn't I, I, I see it like it's almost like the same with how the Quran appropriates from the biblical texts. You have this kind of aesthetic similarity of taking on certain names, like certain prophets and certain stories from the biblical texts, but the understand or like you have you know taking on certain you know here and there uh, old testament laws or like ritual purity things which are also aesthetic you could say mm -hmm. but the meaning and the like the meaning undergirding those things is just lost um so i i like i understand the point about aesthetic similarity but for me it's like i don't want to lead with that because then they'll they might be mistaken to think that like they have the same thing as us when they when they do yeah yeah I, I agree with that to be honest with you i i just I, you know i'm not a particularly good muslim apologist apologist i'll just come out right and say it but i i found that it works with my friends for example might not be a good strategy definitely and uh i guess that's why you guys are here because you are the experts and that's what you focus on so yeah uh, I wouldn't I, call myself an expert, but um, yeah, just well, well, well versed, well versed. 
Louis, I think I think I forgot to ask you at the start, which I wanted to actually bring up, is what is your uh, background? Because Kai said he was born into the faith. Were you born into the faith also, or no? Um, I was born into kind of an agnostic family, um, and then I was raised <clears throat> sort of. Uh, yeah, sort of agnostic. But then when I was about seven years old, I wanted to become a Christian. Um, and so my mother reluctantly had me christened in the Anglican church because I kind of liked the whole like Anglican, old English. Like, I don't know if you have any familiarity with it, but like the choirs and the kind of like the really nice um, sort of architectural like buildings, very beautiful and stuff like that. I like kind of the... Yeah holy space kind of idea like sacred space um and then <clears throat> because of that my mother decided she would also she also would like look into like the christianity and then she converted but she became like an evangelical um and then i uh i in my teens i became pretty much a militant atheist like i became a big fan of like hitchens and dawkins and Dennett and Sam Harris and I sort of stuck with Millicent atheism for about six years maybe um so my Christianity was never really very <clears throat> understood it was just kind of an aesthetic inclination um but then my mom like prayed for me for, for the five years I was an atheist and a number of other circumstances came together and I eventually sort of came back to Christianity but I just became orthodox after doing like research and so I'm trying to stay orthodox. Um, I, I am relatively familiar with Anglicanism because I actually I went to an Anglican school uh, when I was growing up and I did definitely like the aesthetic. I find that it's actually quite rever like it's reverential. It looks good. And uh, I, I liked a lot of aspects of it. What I did not like, and I'm sure we all know about the um, this, they have they started to have like women giving communion. I noticed toward the end when they're having the uh, the mass, uh, there was this like deaconess, and she'd actually put communion on the tongues of everyone um, yeah. that was receiving. Uh, so that's just one of many. That's highlighting the greater issue in Anglicanism, which is, you know, kind of veering away from orthodoxy and from orthodox praxis. Yeah. I was like seven years old, um, so none of this stuff really, you know, was in my mind. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah, otherwise it looks beautiful. The churches are often very beautiful. Um, there's no... so so. Uh, on this topic, I think uh, something that's a bit of a shame is that we don't really have as much Western architecture and Western influence. We're talking about Orthodoxy and Islam. There's nothing Western there. Or what, mo there's mostly nothing Western there. We're trying to kind of get greater Western outreach, of course. But um, the reason those two have affected each other so much is because they're both in close proximity and they are, by and large, very Eastern faiths. Uh, I wanted to ask you on that topic, um, with Islam, 
I hear all the time, one minute that it's like they plagiarized from Arianism, they plagiarized from Nestorianism, they took from Monophysitism. Um, and every person that says it always says one specific one, but they're all mutually opposed. Like Nestorianism is the exact opposite of Monophysitism. So is there one specific one they, they took a large amount from, or is that just people theorizing? If, because I know you said so medieval history is something you focused on. It's sort, of, it's it sort of debated. It's sort of debated. Okay. Um, even linguistically, there's some scholars that argue more for like Syriac influence on the Quran and others that argue for Ethiopic. Um, <clears throat> and to what degree those stories are about Muhammad interacting with Aryans or Nestorians are true or not, it's kind of like, hmm. But I think, so there's, yeah, there's different views. Um, I don't think Nestorianism is inherently opposed to Arianism, though. Like, you could probably, you could probably get both. It would just be like super heretical. <laughs> I'm just trying to think about it. But um, yeah, what do you think, Kai? I, yeah. Right. So it's I just mean, a sort I, of a bit of everything, right? It's just like it is, yeah. Gnosticism, it's, Talmudism, like you know, Nestorianism, Arianism. Yeah. Um, the, the approach that I kind of like to, I think that kind of couches it in its historical context as why you see all of these kind of influences. And I do think that there are multiple sources of influences here. It's not just exclusively one, and it has to be like only Arianism or only Nestorianism or only whatever, is that when you look at it historically, Islam grew as a political movement. Muhammad was a political figure. And in order for him to establish his empire, if you will, or quote-unquote empire or his community, whatever uh, phrase you want to call it, he needs to have an army. He needs to have supporters. And in order to grow his base, if he's not able to grow that base from his own native Arab tribe, he has to start looking elsewhere, looking towards other communities who are not necessarily Arabs or who are not necessarily sharing in the same traditions or in the same tribal network as him. And so this is where he gets into interactions with, for example, Jews and Christians and Sabians or whoever is in the vicinity. Um, and then when the his followers are being persecuted, they flee to Abyssinia. So they're in contact with the Ethiopic Christians over, over there. And so you see that there is within, right from the get-go, a lot of interactions that um, Islam has or the Islamic community has with these other groups. And so one of the strategies, if you want to start growing a, a, a support network or you want to grow people um, that are favorable to your position, is you start kind of catering to them and mm. you start saying that, um, well, I'm going to recognize your prophets. You have a holy book. Okay, accept me as a prophet, or at least see that there's a common cause that we both share against these idolaters. It's like, you guys are Christians, you guys are Jews, you're monotheists. Um, we're monotheists too. So let's kind of pool our resources together and combat against the um, the Arab yeah. idolaters. And it's a lot of the kind of idea where that you'll see um, an ecumenist type mindset even in today where it's like, why don't Christians and Muslims team up against the atheists, for example? And so like finding common cause there and that kind of approach in order to um, 
endear yourself to the to the people who are otherwise um, opposed to you, you kind of start legitimizing some of the stuff that they believe in um, that allows you to establish that common base. And so then that kind of starts seeping in to Islam and it finds its way, but it doesn't find its way in its original form or in its well-developed mm. form. It just starts seeing this superficial influence um, trickle in. And because you don't get the entire, let's say, the theology that uh, is associated with it, Muslims, Muhammad, don't understand all of the implications behind appropriating all of this stuff. It's only after the fact, after Muhammad dies, and Islam really starts kind of uh, coming onto the historical scene where people other than Muslims start basically being exposed to its teachings and can start analyzing it. Like, for example, St. John of Damascus, and he starts reading stuff, and he's like, this is just nonsense. This doesn't make any sense what you guys are talking about. And it becomes like scrutinized. Now it starts becoming apparent that a lot of these things were just kind of cribbed from other uh, other religions. So for me, I see it more kind of rooted in that historical context, why you start seeing all of these other influences. Um, I was going to say, yeah, some examples of this sort of trying to appeal to different groups. If that was the intention, it's unclear. And obviously the whole thing of Islam being a political narrative is possibly an over-reliance on the, on the um, tradition rather than kind of doing something more critical. But let's say that's the case. You have in the Quran various different stories that get pulled sort of affirmed from different sources. So you have, say, um, the story of High Priest Zechariah in the temple with Mary, Mary being raised in the temple in the Quran, which is from the Proto-Evangelium of James and from Luke 1. So the details in Luke 1 that aren't in the Proto-Evangelium. So they kind of get smushed together. You have um, Abraham, obviously Kai's been making videos on this. You have Abraham um, worshipping the stars or, you know, and having disputations with his father or, um, and this is basically taken from the Book of Jubilees, which is a canonical Ethiopian text. Um, then you have uh, various Old Testament stories, Moses, the burning bush, you have the Ark of the Covenant, Moses ascending the mountain and God's glory appearing. Uh, this is all in the Old Testament. Then you have the infancy narrative of Jesus with Mary, which is from uh, Gospel of Thomas, I think. No. Yes. Maybe. Um, but yeah, so you have the you have that. So you have all these different sort of sources that come together. Um and uh but yeah, I also thought maybe Kai had something to say about um how he would how he approaches Muslims as well, because I I I said some things about that, but I think maybe Kai has something he'd like to say. Before we uh, go yeah. to that, something I just wanted to bring up. We were talking about that mentality where uh, everyone kind of bands together, or Muslims, Christians band together, where you actually see that in the Middle East a lot, where all the Christians, all the Christian denominations that by nature would be opposed to each other actually be like, oh, you know, you're Christian, I'm Christian, these Muslim guys are coming to, to kill us. So let's forget about ecumenical councils and the fact that we don't believe you have sacraments and say, you know, we're all the same thing. 
And that created a lot of issues with mixed marriages and other things in the Middle East. I just wanted to put that topic forward. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but um doesn't really doesn't really interest us to be honest. Um I, I go to an Antiochian church and you see it a lot and it's very difficult to deal with because almost every second marriage is a mixed marriage and by nature those kinds of marriages um they don't actually believe the same things. So they're destined to well almost destined to fail. But uh I, I I just thought it was relevant to the topic and I'd bring it up as a bit of a note here. Otherwise, Kai, you were saying how you would approach Muslim. Yeah, so before I get into that there, um, I just kind of comment on what you had just said now. So it's basically, it's like you see these mixed marriages and it's not like every spouse from each side in each of these marriages are like well-versed theologians. It's not like they know their religion completely like cover to cover you just have them kind of bringing along some baggage that they've grown up with some beliefs that they hold on to um not necessarily fleshed out and so then you just get this kind of mashing together of different systems and that's what i'm saying is that could be happening with regards to um the influences that we see on islam so that you just have this kind of exposure to um christian and jewish and other environments that the islamic um community has had and it's not that it had it in its full true form as espoused by let's say communal councils but you just have some kind of influence being being present there it's only on retrospect when we start examining the sources that we see it was only just really kind of a superficial familiarity with it but yeah if i can actually just kind of address some points here with regards to um what i think in terms of um approaching muslims um when we're going to discuss islam and potentially orthodoxy uh, so lewis kind of gave you his side of it now when we started up orthodox shahada one of the things that we started up from the get-go was this question of what's your akida that we would basically mandate that if we're going to have um, any kind of interactions with Muslims, before we're going to have anything meaningful, we're going to first establish what is the Muslim's aqidah. And this is something that basically we've popularized and it has really taken off. This approach has really taken off and it's not just among Orthodox, but non-Orthodox are also seeing the value in starting a dialogue with Muslims asking this question. Um, for those who don't know, Akeda is basically creedal-like statements and their accompanying explanations. And this is very important because unlike orthodoxy, which has unified belief and normativity, meaning uh, the means by which to establish what constitutes correct belief, uh, so for example, for us, it's the ecumenical councils, Islam is all over the place. And this is you this is within Sunniism as well. I just want to say that because I think Carl was under the impression it was just Sunni versus Shia or something. But this yeah, it's not just Sunni versus Shia. It's like you see this in Shiaism as well. You see it in Sunni. You see it in Sunni versus Shia. But I'm talking like even just specifically within the the Sunni kind of umbrella. And so what ends up happening here is is you have contradictory, irreconcilable differences 
and no way to establish which of the belief systems is true or if any of them are even true. And so getting Muslims to commit to a particular belief system prevents uh, him from shifting around when he discovers that his position is basically problematic. And so the idea here is to say that a Muslim, um, let me just rephrase this, it's like the, the idea here, it, it isn't really to say that the Muslim can't recognize that he has errors and that he can't change his position as a result of seeing that there are errors in his position. Rather, it's to avoid situations where Muslim will pretend like there are no problems within Islam. And so he'll shift around his positions, hoping that you don't know what's what's going on. Is that um, so for example, is the I'm word sorry? Is the word uh, it can be, it can be taqiyya. Taqiyya is basically um, hiding your true beliefs, but it's really in its technical application should only be done when a person's life is threatened. So a person will not um, admit to holding certain beliefs when if they were to express those beliefs, their life would actually be threatened. But a lot of Muslims nowadays, especially when they're engaging with non-Muslims, they will engage not necessarily in taqiyya, but just outright lying. They will not be honest and forthright with their own position. And so they will try to mask what they actually believe in. And so they'll do this shifting in, and, and, and take positions that they don't actually hold to. But they won't. Uh, they're basically hoping that you won't be able to recognize this. And so we'll see this. It's like, for example, if uh, they'll cite a particular scholar who supports their position, but then when that scholar doesn't suit the argument, they will dismiss that scholar and take a different scholar that does support their position. And so it basically amounts to shopping around to getting the answers needed for the current engagement uh, than it is about basically being consistent from engagement to engagement. So it's like, for example, we as Orthodox, we're not going to be utilizing arguments um, as Catholics or Protestants when we engage Muslims. We're going to be consistent. Doesn't matter which Muslim we interact with, we're always going to be presenting from the Orthodox position. What the Muslims will often do is, is they have this variance in beliefs and they're just going to pick and choose which one is most appropriate at the time. And it won't necessarily correspond to what they personally believe in. But there, because there is no normativity in Islam, it's all just kind of under the uh, framework or the umbrella of Islam in general. And so they're just going to pick what is most um, convenient. And an example that I'm going to give you of this, um, of an irreconcilable difference among Muslims. And so this one isn't really just restricted to um, the Sunni branch, but just Islam in general, is this belief in occasionalism versus secondary causation. And so um, Ghazali represents the historical Sunni majority position, which is occasionalist. And the thing is, is that the overwhelming majority of Muslims, from whatever background they are, don't actually understand what occasionalism entails and will often reject it when it's explained to them. And so when I read 
for them a portion from Ghazali that explicitly explains what occasionalism entails, these individuals reject the position because they don't accept that Allah is, for example, the creator of evil. So just to give you an example here, I actually um, have the book handy right here. It's Moderation and Belief, uh, sorry here, by Ghazali. And so let me just read you a, a very brief passage to the, illustrate the point here. So you have, for example, it says, um, it has become apparent that every occurrence is originated by God's power. And whatever that power originates requires a will to direct the power to the object and to assign it to it. Hence, every object of power is willed and every occurrence is an object of power. Therefore, every occurrence is willed. Evil, unbelief, and sin are all occurrence. Therefore, they are inevitably willed by God. Okay? So, if the Muslim wants to be historically consistent and adopt the belief of mainstream majority historical Sunni Islam, this is what he has to subscribe to. And so the conversation then proceeds to demonstrate the logical problems that the occasionalist position entails and how Muslims try to get around it and um, like, for example, they may invoke something called KESP or acquisition, and then what the problems are with that, and so on and so forth. So it's just basically like um, uh, a domino of argumentations that, that uh, follow. But if the Muslim rejects occasionalism and adopts some sort of secondary causative model, then we get into a spectrum of possible positions. And so, for example, does everything have the capability to exhibit secondary causation or only humans? Or maybe it's humans and angels. Um, and then you have questions like, can God impose himself on someone to override their causal agency? And if he can, does he? If he does, how do we know when it occurs? And so a whole host of other questions that cannot be satisfactorily and adequately addressed specifically within the Islamic paradigm basically follow from these um, overarching questions. Now, one thing I will say is that most engagements with Muslims don't really end up going into this kind of extensive detail on, on these issues. Sometimes they do, but not always. But by bringing up these specific issues, my purpose is to demonstrate that Islam by far is not a unified belief system and that there are significant theological differences that exist. And these issues are not something that we can just relegate to scholarly discussions and basically say that they're just irrelevant details. It's not irrelevant if you as a Muslim believe that Allah is the direct cause of evil. And here we've got to be careful because we're not saying that Allah permits evil, but that he is the direct cause of it that the occasionalist position uh, mandates. So that evil has to come into existence as an explicit act of Allah, specifically as a result of his willing it. So this is a very important point. Yeah, we diverge. We think that uh, 
evil is the absence of good. So it's not God right. creates evil. It's just the absence of God because God is good. But they're saying right. that God actually creates. Okay. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Correct. Yes. So in orthodoxy, we take a, a model. It's like a privation model. So what we say is, is that there is this thing that's like ontologically good. And evil is just simply like the absence of of this good it's a privation but in the islamic scheme evil in and of itself has a particular ontology that is distinct from goodness if you will so allah will create evil like there is something that is that um that allah deems evil and he will create something that uh, corresponds to that evil right and so the overarching concern here in terms of bringing up these kinds of discussions is that muslims don't get to criticize things like the holy trinity and then expect to be given a free pass to not discuss theological issues in islam right so it's really kind of what we're getting at here is is that we want to demonstrate that muslims when they're engaging christians for the most part they're employing some kind of double standards it's like they want to be able to criticize um, christianity and the doctrine of the trinity but they want to not have to be able to speak to any kind of theology at um, um with regards to islam they'll just say we believe in one god and that's sufficient we don't have to go and take the discussion beyond that and it's like no we're going to demonstrate to you that there is uh, there are certain theological implications because of the way you perceive God, the way you think God is in his attributes and in his ontology that brings into play these kinds of things like evil, the question about evil, and you have um, what you hold to historically the position. And it's like, well, let's discuss all of this stuff, okay? So you don't get to hide behind this simplistic understanding of, um, of, of Islam. It's like, okay, if you want to discuss Christianity, well, you got to discuss your doctrines as well. And what we end up doing is, is we either engage in that discussion or what most often overwhelming majority uh, of the time happens is that we actually end up demonstrating that the Muslim doesn't actually know what Islam teaches just doesn't doesn't know it and when we present these texts like i said like when i read from ghazali they get stunned they get completely stunned um to illustrate the point again um i'll give you another example and this is one kind of that sure. um is a staple of things that we discuss when we engage muslims because it is very very important um it's a discussion on the attributes and discussing the attributes it serves basically a similar purpose um, as a discussion uh, entailing occasionalism, uh, sorry, occasionalism. And so basically what we're going to do is we're going to explore the logical problems that the Muslim gets himself into with regards to the way he conceives of the divine attributes. And so, and we demonstrate in the process that criticism of the Holy Trinity is actually unwarranted if the Muslim holds to such and such positions. Uh, with regards to the attributes okay or again we just simply demonstrate that they are wholly ignorant on the issue and being ignorant on the issue doesn't really kind of give them um a leg to stand on to start criticizing other other beliefs okay 
So that's kind of my approach and Orthodox Shahada's approach just in general. Yeah. It's not that we do this all the time, but it's one of our, our staple. staple I, I wanted to just say, like, um, this touches on the point originally I said about how, you know, you might have these aesthetic similarities, right? So they, so they believe God has attributes. We believe God has attributes. They believe in good and evil. We believe in good and evil. But then when you get into actually the meat of what, you know, the metaphysics and the theology there is going on there, it's very, very different. Um, so um, I think we just need to like move away from surface level aesthetic similarities and look at actually what undergirds, what undergirds all these things. Um, and I'd say like, yeah, my, I suppose my, my answer to the question of how do you approach Muslims was more of a pragmatic thing, uh, a pragmatic answer. Like, how would you actually concretely do that? Uh, Kai's talking about what the content of the, those discussions might be. So I'd say, yeah, um, you know, you can, you can raise these topics yourself with Muslims if you want to. I think a lot of Muslims in real life don't really have any interest in this usually, um, well, they have so much of a certain understanding of Christianity from what they've been told growing up into adulthood that makes them kind of unreceptive. So we tend to just try to make videos and um, if certain Muslims are receptive to it, they will be. And if others aren't, then that's that. But yeah, if you want to talk to them, just be like, well, did you know that, you know, do you know who, do you know who Imam al-Ghazali is? It's like, well, yeah, he's pretty important as I'm a scholar, right? Oh yeah. Well, did you know that he, he believes this? He thinks this is like standard Sunni views that God creates evil. So what do you, what do you think about that? And discussion can go like that. Um, I was going to say with Islam. So the first thing we want to do that we were to put in dot point format is you want to get them to, to give you their Akida or their creed, their theology and stick to that theology. So then you can engage in the conversation. Is that, is that what Akida is? It's their creed and the theology. My right. So if you were to if you were to say like for example, if we would just use that term akida to apply it in a Christian context, we would say our akida would be representative by let's say um, the Nicene Creed. But it we got to be very careful because when we say the Nicene Creed, we don't mean simply just the words of the creed yeah. in and of themselves. Because what's very important here when we're asking the Akhida of somebody is how do you, first of all, what is the text itself so that we actually have something concrete that we can look at, but then how do you actually understand yes. those those words that text how do you actually understand it yeah and this is actually a very important um illustration like to demonstrate the point is is like for example um i think i can't remember i think it's the second letter that saint cyril wrote to nestorius second or third letter i can't remember one of those letters and he wrote to nestorius and he's like it's not sufficient that you recite the creed in the same way that we do it like that we're just saying the words Saying the words in and of themselves is not sufficient. What is also at play here is the way you're understanding yep. some of these statements. And then St. Cyril goes to demonstrate. It's like when we're reading this statement, this is how we're understanding it. But when you're reading it, you're understanding it this way. Yep. And so this is setting up for us a competing um, a theological understanding. And so when we're asking Muslims their aqidah, we're first asking what is the text and then how do you understand that text? Because what you end up having is you can have 
one text that is common to multiple different traditions, but exegeted in different yeah. different ways that conflict with, with each other. Like one example is the Aqidah of Tahawi or the or Tahawiya creed, right? So you'll have like Ashari's commenting on it, you'll have Maturidi's commenting on it, you'll have Athari's commenting on it, and each will kind of give their own spin on how to understand the basic phraseology being presented in in that text. Yeah, because the Nicene Creed is really just a a a very brief distillation of lots and lots and lots of theology that was that that had been building up to that point. So if you want to understand the Creed of Nicaea, you need to understand the theology of the church fathers that drafted the creed and approved the creeds. It's like Athanasius, right? Like would would be the first one to go to. And then obviously the creed gets re revised at the Council of Constantinople. So then you're looking at the the Cappadocian fathers and what they what they said. And then the the creed gets reaffirmed in its same form at Ephesus and at Chalcedon, at which point you're then looking at other fathers. You're looking at, you know, um Saint Kirill of Alexandria, etc. So you need to it's not just the words like concept. yes so not the word concept fallacy basically that's what we're avoiding here is basic level word concept fallacies when you equate the words and you attack the word but it's about the idea behind the words is that what you're saying you want to avoid well it's not well, no no it's 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 a little bit different it's not specifically word concept fallacy it's really more about what you actually even just how you understand exposition it's, not, it's an it's exposition, exposition. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, when we ask, for example, what is your Aqidah? Somebody might say to them, to us, that we follow or they, they follow um, the Aqidah known, like, for example, the Asharis. And so if you say that you subscribe to the Ashari Aqidah, that right away in and of itself tells me that when you say you believe in the divine attributes of Allah, one, you're telling me you believe in divine attributes, but it's also telling me how you believe in those attributes, what's entailed by your belief in those attributes. Do you know another thing is that they they make like the um they they think that military power equals you being correct. Like if you defeat someone in warfare, that means you were right. And the thing is orthodoxy isn't really inclined to to take people by the sword it's actually contra contra our theology we don't take converts by killing them but islam does this by and large like the sword that's how they spread so far and wide and um how do you make them see that it's not just about warfare it's not about whoever who kills who who uh defeats well, I, I, I like to just i like to just say like well america has been grinding the Middle Eastern countries into the dust for the last few decades. And they hate Americans. They usually hate America. So I is okay. so is so is liberal democracy now the uh, might makes right correct view? I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Um on this topic, so we've got to Akira. Once you get them to open up that Akira. You elaborate on their Akira and you get them, you ask questions, you probe their theology. Do you know this person? Do you know that person? And when do you start to bring in your theology? Because I think that's the most important part, actually getting orthodoxy into their 
uh, radar. Well, usually they lead with, <laughs> usually they lead with your theology. <laughs> so, so attack it. Yeah. So the, the Akita is useful because what you're doing is you understand, you're supposed to understand what their views are on all these fine theological topics. So that when they try to make an argument, uh, it's going to be, like Kai said, a double standard. Um, and you can provide a solution to the problem they're raising, but you can also say, hey, like, you're not in a privileged position on this, on this question yes. either. There's something, that's what they do. It's like, if you bring up a genuine flaw that Islamic theology has, the first thing that I find always happens is they go to the Bible and they try and prove that you believe it as well. That's what I see. Like, for example, you bring up that verse 65, 4, technically. Which you might not, right? Which you might not believe it as well, right? And that's why you check first. So you can ask someone, do you, this is why you say, the, what is the Akida question? Do you believe, is this your Akida? Yes. Okay. So then you believe all this. Great. So now you critique the Trinity, but your beliefs have this problem. But the problem with them is that they'll just like force their understanding of the Bible on you, which you don't necessarily take. Right. That's why you ask first what they believe and then you can carry on. And I then think, you can uh, do this. A good example I can think of that is if you bring up verse 65.4 in the Quran, technically that does permit you to marry a prepubescent child. If you bring that mm -hmm. up, the first thing they'll do is always they'll go to Isaac specifically and they'll say that Rebecca was like, I don't know if it was Isaac, it was, they'll say Rebecca, that figure in the Old Testament, Rebecca was three years old. But yes, it's just not this. So yeah. that's not what it says at all. But they do this weird thing with the maths where they like add it up and they say, oh, therefore she was three. But we don't teach that and we don't believe that anyways. And then they insist yeah. no, that is what you believe. That is what you believe. But you can't do the same to them. Um, so with Islam, it's like if the person is not receptive to you, I feel like there's just no point in opening up the conversation. To no, there's, yeah, I don't think there is. Yeah. And that's one of the things is when you in, when you lead with the Akita question, it gives you this opportunity to probe to what extent they're actually familiar with what their position entails and whether or not you're actually going to have a fruitful discussion with these people or whether or not they're just here yeah. to attack Christianity because they're following a script or something like that. Um, and so a lot of the times it's basically we just ask the questions to such a detailed level um, that they require that Islamic knowledge that they just kind of leave at that point because they themselves see that the engagement is not going to be fruitful and that we're going down a train of thought that requires them to provide answers that they themselves do not have um, answers for that they just don't know it perhaps and they just leave because they thought it was going to be one of these things yeah they have the script already worked out they're going to run it through they're going to defeat the christian and move on to the next one it's like well it's not happening so they're just wasting wasting their time with us well it's so a lot of... since, since we popularized this akita thing do you remember when we first had our server yeah and we were asking this question and muslims would join and then they would be like what are you talking about? Like, what's what's Akida? And they'd be like, oh, we have no idea what that is. And like, you're just talking nonsense. Like, you're just making it up. And or they're like, well, I'm just a Sunni and stuff like that. You get these like, you know, just 
completely ignorant answers. But now, after two years, now we never get that anymore. It's just here's here's yeah. the Akita, or I don't know. Um, yes, so. exactly. Like the bafflement has kind of decreased. Like initially, yeah. really, the people were baffled. They didn't even like we didn't actually have to like link them to like Islamic sites that dis that explain what it means to have an aqidah and show them Islamic books discussing what aqidah entails. But now, I mean, it's kind of caught on and even Muslims amongst themselves are asking this question of other Muslims when they're engaging in like inter-Muslim dialogue to kind of narrow down what exactly it is that they, that they believe. Um, but just to come back to, for example, to the 65-4, um, an alternate way uh, that they Muslims will typically respond to 65-4 is the part where um, the divorce happens with regards to um, a woman that never had any menses. For them to avoid the charge that not having menses means that it was a prepubescent girl they'll just say well you can have examples of somebody who is in grown like full adulthood maybe in their 20s who have never had menses and that the quran is actually referring to these types of people so that's, that's one kind of every goal. every islamic scholar that i've seen from the the earlier islamic scholars interprets it like prepubescent child no correct and and that's the thing and so in order to counter their potential cope or their way of trying to get out of this is you have to be familiar with what exactly their scholars say what is the jurisprudential rulings the fic how do those people interpret 65 4 and when you look at that it's across the board islam since its very inception always understood the scholars always understood 65-4 to refer to prepubescence. And then this gets corroborated with regards to the um, jurisprudential stance with regards to prepubescence just in general. And when you start looking at these books, just you find it all over the place where this idea that um, sexual engagement with prepubescent children is permitted. And so yes. it gives you that understanding of 65-4 that no, really it is talking of this, uh, of this, uh, these individuals. I suppose the unfortunate aspect of leading with topics like 65-4 is that all it does is either make a Muslim shift on their, on their, like what they take as normative, uh, or it just makes them um, like, the only other the only other reaction is like double down on it well double down on it <laughs> yes we believe this so what um or shift normativity so we don't accept that scholar okay uh or go with this other scholar who's modern who interprets it this other way or um the third option is well i guess i don't want to be a muslim then um none of which you get the result of them actually becoming christian so i think um leading with topics that actually have some kind of cross cross um solution is with christianity is is better in my opinion otherwise are there any books you'd recommend on this topic on islam any one book each of you would recommend one book yeah or you know give me a list of them short list 
what I would say is not so much one book. I would recommend basically kind of like a set. It's, you can think of it as one kind of continuous book, if you will. And I would say if anybody is really want to get like the most mileage out of something, I would say read Imam Nawawi's commentary on Sahih Muslim. Now, it's multi-volumes here, but there's just so much that you're going to get out of that. You're going to get basically the hadiths. You're going to get an authoritative scholar giving you his expositions. In his commentaries, he's going to touch on topics of jurisprudence. Um, he's going to talk on topics of exegesis. He's going to run the whole gamut that basically he, he will encapsulate for you what Muslims basically believe from beginning to end. It's all just kind of wrapped up for you in one um, scholarly exposition. That's what I would recommend people to read. And uh, what about you, Lewis? Such a difficult question, one book. Um, yeah, so if you're a Christian wanting to engage with Muslims, um, so this book I'm going to say is not the best book to learn about Islam, Islamic theology or Islamic whatever. Um, it's not the best book. It's not going to tell you like make this argument or these are like really strong arguments. But I think it's a very good book to pique interest and to introduce you to some interesting kind of classical conundrums. Uh, I would say it's uh, the Quran and its biblical subtext by Gabriel Reynolds. Um, I've really enjoyed that book. And what he does is he shows basically how the Quran relies on biblical stories um, and relies and assumes that its audience is aware of these stories and that the audience will fill in the details when the Quran sort of, when the author of the Quran name drops or uh, asks its audience to recall certain events in uh, prophetic history or whatever, but all of those stories have their detail and exposition outside of the Quran, namely in the Bible. Um, and then he explains how, because of this ambiguity in those stories in the Quran, how the Quran recounts those stories, you, you get this whole massive body of tafsir literature um, of commentators trying to deal with uh all of these ambiguities and making sense of them um but they never uh, actually look at the biblical text which sort of gives the detail for them so they all have these fine, kind of funny contradicting views thank you both so much for joining us today i made sure to put all your socials down in the comments below you can check out their discord server and their youtube channel